this is your first time here, we normally walk through books of the Bible verse by verse. This is a little bit different in this series where we're jumping to different passages of Scripture. But nonetheless, Colossians 2, 6, and 7 is where we are going to park today. And so I'm going to read it, but because we're jumping into a section of Colossians, it's important that we're going to give the context that we find ourselves in verses 6 and 7. So if you're there, say you're there. All right, let's look at verse 6. It says, therefore, so let me stop there for a reason. So whenever you're reading the Bible and you come to the phrase, therefore, or so, or because, that ought to indicate to you, man, we want to, I want to read what's in the verses previous to the verse that I'm reading because someone is drawing a conclusion based on what they've already stated. And this is no different. We're jumping into verses six and seven, but I want to give you the reason why Paul is saying, therefore, the, the reason why he's drawing a conclusion. And what is he drawing a conclusion why, what is it based off of? And so in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, he's literally talking about the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is above all, how all things are created in him. Like he is first place. He is to be first place in our lives, and he's first place over all creation. Whether or not we acknowledge him as such, he is first place. He is supreme over all things. That title is rightly given to him because of what he's accomplished for every man, woman, and child who places their faith and trust in him. He is supreme. And so Paul is laying that out in Colossians. And Lord willing, we're going to walk through this book in the new year. And then he comes to verses, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, which is the verse, obviously, right before what we're reading in verses 6 and 7, and he's talking about the gospel that's been faithfully given to them. So this is who Jesus Christ is, chapter 1, verses 15, but then in chapter, the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, this is what you've been given. You've been given this gospel message that has been faithfully given to you. So now we come to verse 6. Everybody say that word with me, that very first word. You ready? Say it with me. Therefore. So based on that reality, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That word received is an interesting word. Because that word received doesn't specifically refer only to him talking to these people, the church at Colossae that this letter is written to. He's not saying that just because, that therefore you've received Jesus. In other words, you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's not what that word is only referring to. It's literally referring to that you have accepted this gospel message as your own. You've applied it to your life. You've put your trust into it. But more than that, you've also received this gospel message that changes other people's lives. So you've received it for yourself, and you've received it for your salvation, and it is changing you, but you've also received it for more than just you. You've received it to also give that to others. That's the idea of the word receive. So he says, therefore, as you receive Christ, what does he say? So walk in him. In other words, if you've received this message, of the gospel, a message of reconciliation on how to be made right with God. And it is changing you as you're becoming more and more like Christ. Then your life, 
the manner by which you live your life needs to match the message that you have received and have been given. That's the point that Paul is making in verse 6. And so what I want us to understand, first of all, is this phrase, and we're going to unpack this phrase throughout these two verses, but it's this, that the gospel is the means of your salvation, but it's also the means of your sanctification. So what do I mean by that? The gospel is the means of my salvation in the sense that it is what I need to place my trust in, not in the good that I can accomplish, but in the perfection that Christ has accomplished for me. So when I get to heaven, if I'm relying on today that hopefully the good that I do that I do outweighs the bad that I do, then I fail to realize that in Isaiah, God says that all my good, righteous deeds that I think are great are like a polluted garment before a holy God because God is without sin. So if I sin one time, I've not met the standard. So God sent Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life, a life that you and I can't live. And then he died on the cross to die the death that you and I deserve because of our sin. And three days later, he raised himself from the dead so that today, if I place my trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done for me, not what I can do for myself, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, that the gospel is the means for my salvation on how I can be reconciled, made right with God. But listen to me. It's also the means for my sanctification. Because when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'm given the Holy Spirit. John 14 talks about how he's the helper. And he gives me the power to actually want to do what God says I should do in his word. And I begin to be changed more and more like Jesus. More like Jesus, less like who I used to be before I placed my trace faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the gospel is not just the means for my salvation, but it's also the means of my sanctification. So why should we value being gospel-centered in all we do? Let me get more personal. Why should you value that? Why should I value that? Well, if you're asking that, and I hope that you are, This is a passage of scripture that's going to give us the answer, and we're going to look at some others, and we could take time and do a whole series just on this one idea. But what I want to do is I want to give you four reasons why you should value being gospel-centered in all you do. And they're going to come straight from verse 7. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says, rooted So you've received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. How am I going to walk in him? Understanding that I've been rooted. See, here's the first reason. The gospel is where your security is rooted. The word rooted is an agricultural term. You don't have to be super smart to figure that out. It's an agricultural term. But I love, like, the tense that the word is in. Anybody an English teacher in here? Any English teachers? We got any English teachers in here? No? Okay, we got a few English teachers in here. English was not my strongest subject. But remember how you had different tenses? Well, the same is true in the Greek, which is the New Testament, what the New Testament is written in. And I love the tense that the word rooted is in, that you can't really get an idea from in the English. This literally means once and for all having been rooted. Like it's happened, it doesn't need to happen again. 
You have been rooted. Rooted in what? Rooted in Jesus Christ. What Paul is referring to is you need to walk in him because you've been rooted in him. And it happened once and it, and it doesn't need to happen again. You've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and your security is in him. It's not in how much good I do. It's not in how much bad I do. It is in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for me. In other words, God does not want you and God does not want me to figuratively be walking around like some tumbleweed that's blowing in the wind depending on how good a day or how bad a day I have. Man, God, I started out this day and I wanted to live for you and, and, I, and I wanted to do these things and I made the wrong choice and I gave into my flesh. So I need to get saved again. No, 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 you've been rooted. Once and for all, having been rooted. God's design for you is not to be a tumbleweed blowing in the wind. His desire for you is not that you need to be transplanted from one soil to the next. That, well, this doesn't seem to be working for me today, so maybe I was wrong. Maybe I need to look for something else. No, no, no. Uh, Jesus Christ is the place that I'm rooted. It's where I get my nourishment from. It's how I bear good fruit. It is my, he is my lifeline. That's John 15, 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. The gospel is the means for my salvation. Now, here's what I know. Most of us in this room probably would call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. We would say, man, I've come to a place where I place my trust in Jesus Christ. What I've found is I very rarely need to emphasize that the gospel is necessary for your salvation. Like we got that. Like if you grew up like me, you were used to pastors coming in from other places and speaking to you for a week and making you feel guilty every night. And literally, I remember sometimes, man, when I was a 12-year-old kid, 13-year-old kid, and, and even in junior high and high school, man, I would sit there and I would listen to those guys, and man, I'd walk the aisle like every night to place my trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because I was like, man, I'm not sure after listening to this person talk for, for, for 30, 40 minutes, man. I, I mean, he's foaming at the mouth. He's sweating to death. I mean, he is giving it everything, and I am feeling tremendously guilty. I bet I just I need to walk an aisle again because, man, I wasn't, well, I thought it was sincere Monday, but I guess I'm not. So now Tuesday, I need to do it again, and on and on and on and on. Because so often in the church, Man, we got it down, and it's an amazing truth, and it's a fundamental truth, and it is the truth. I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Absolutely, the gospel is the means for my salvation. But you know what I found growing up as I, as I got older and older, and, and other people started to speak into me, and I started to grow in my understanding and significance of the gospel in my life, that if there are times when I'm not living the right way, I don't need to get saved again. What I need to do is I need to engage in the power of the Holy Spirit and submit daily to him and his strength to, to do what he desires to do in my life. It's not a salvation problem. It's often a sanctification problem. So I don't need to get rooted again. Why? Because the tense here says, once and for all, having been rooted. Listen to me. The gospel is 
the security by which your life is rooted. And if you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then let me tell you, I know that's why God has you here today. Because he wants you to hear that Jesus Christ loved you enough to live and to die and be risen for your sins. Stop relying on the good that you've done and trust in the perfection that Christ has accomplished for you. But see, here's the second reason why I need to value being gospel-centered in all I do. Do you see the next phrase? He just doesn't say rooted, but he says built up in him. See, the second reason is this. The gospel is what your life should be built upon. That's why I need to value being gospel-centered in all I do. That's why we as a church want to be gospel-centered in all we do. Because the gospel is where our lives ought to be built upon. And that built up is an architectural term. It's interesting. Paul like throws out a farming analogy and now all of a sudden he's now in an architectural analogy. Like he's all over the place. Sometimes I wonder if Paul was like ADD, right? I mean, you English majors or you English teachers, Paul loved run-on sentences. I used to get killed in that in my English classes. But nevertheless, he says, hey, you're rooted. You've been once and for all, you've been rooted. But now here's my responsibilities. I need to be built up in him. And the tense of that phrase is continually being built up. This isn't a one-time deal. This is a constant thing. And so to use that architectural term, what what Paul is saying is, is, is the foundation by which our lives are built upon is Jesus Christ. What he's accomplished for you and for me. That's my foundation. But my Christian walk is about what am I going to build on that foundation by the strength of the Holy Spirit who has been given to me. Because Romans 5, 5 says that the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts by God. I feel like that's the crux of the issue for most of us. Like how does the gospel play into me becoming more like Jesus? And I feel like, at least for me and others that I've talked to, who can identify with the significance when they realize, man, the gospel's so much more than what I give someone to trust in Christ so they don't go to hell. The gospel really is about me becoming more like Jesus as well. I feel like when everyone comes to that realization, they hit a moment of crisis in their life. Because the reality is, life is hard. You didn't need to come to church today for me to tell you that. Life is hard. It's not easy. And there's hurt, and there's pain, and there's disappointment, and there's betrayal, and there's death, and there's suffering, and there's disease, and there's discouragement, and we could go on and on and on. Because that's the world that we live in. And what I've found true in my life, and as I said, found true in many others' life, is we come when we're experiencing that pain, that hurt, that disappointment, that loss, that disease, 
whatever it may be, that we find ourselves asking this question, can Jesus make a difference in this? Don't you find yourself asking that question? You may be even asking it right now. Man, this person hurt me deeply and, and I've been betrayed or, or my spouse has been unfaithful to me or I, or I just lost this husband or wife that I've loved and I've been married to for so long or, or I've had, experienced some other loss in my life and I'm grieving and I'm sad and I'm hurting and I'm disappointed and I'm struggling and maybe I'm even bitter and I'm asking myself, how does Jesus make a difference in this? Oh, I know how he makes a difference that I know that when I die, if I died today, I would go with him to be with him in heaven. Like, I got that. I've been reconciled to God. I've been right with God. But how does it make a difference today? Man, if you're asking that, or you have asked that, I want to encourage you that you're asking the right question. Because the answer is Yes. Because when we look at this passage of Scripture, and Paul says, just as you've received Jesus Christ, so walk in him, being rooted. Like, man, that's happened. It's a once and for all thing. Nobody can take that away. But what does it look like for me to be built up in him? That happens when I begin to understand that the gospel is more than a message of reconciliation. Man, it is a message of restoration. And the restoration that the Lord wants to do in me. Because what I've found in my life is that those hurts and those disappointments and that betrayal and, and those tragedies and those moments of shame and all of those different types of th things, they all speak to me. Every one of those events. They tell me who I am. They tell me how I, interact, how I should interact with the people around me. And they also, if I'm not careful, can define who I believe my God to be. Because those events in my life, those pains, those hurts, those disappointments, those tragedies, become my reference point to everything. And so I'll sit here in a service and I'll listen to the messages and I'll hear about Jesus and I'll sing about his goodness. But in, but in reality, I know in my mind I'm struggling to believe, can Jesus really make a difference? Because those things are how I view life and how I view God. But can I encourage you with something? knowing that we're supposed to be being built up in him on a daily basis. That as we open up these pages of Scripture, just like last week we talked about that the threat, there's a thread in the Bible of God's glory, there's also a thread in the Bible that speaks to God's love. So if we look at creation again like we did last week and we think about God creating that garden, he created it perfect. Everything that he created, he said it was what? Good. And he created man and woman. And he created man and woman not just to be in relationship with other, but to be in relationship with him. They were created for love. They were created to have a loving relationship with a holy God. Just imagine what it would be like to walk with God and to talk with God and to hear him audibly. And, and we don't know exactly what that looked like because the scriptures don't elaborate. But what we do know is they were created to love God. They were created to be in relationship with God in this perfect place. 
But as you know, one of the things that God tells them, he gives them one command and one command only, and what was it? Not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and, say it with me if you know it, good and what? Evil. And we know that, don't know how long it was from the time that they were created to the time that they fell, but they believed a lie. They believed that God was holding something from them. They believed and he was deceived into thinking that God wasn't as good as he said he was and they eat of that fruit and they sin and they experience shame and they start blaming one another for what happened. See, all of a sudden, what was not in the world before that time, evil enters the world. And ever since that point, evil has been in the world. See, we weren't created for evil, we were created for good. And can you imagine how painful it was when Adam and Eve were banished out of God's presence? That what they were created for was to love God, now they're separated from God's love and they're casted out of that garden. And ever since then, sin has entered the world. And so when I think about my hurts and my disappointments and, and, and betrayals and loss and the different events in my life that can become my reference point to see who I am, to see how I view others, to even view how I see God, what I need to understand, and those are all a result of evil. Evil that has been done to me and evil that I have done to others. And so when we sit to ourselves and we're like, how in the world does Jesus make a difference in my life when I'm faced with these things? We gotta remember what the fall brought. It caused us to be separated from God's love. But I love that in the Bible, there's always hope given in the midst of tragedy. And whatever you're experiencing today, there's hope that is given. Isaiah 61 says this. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So this is a prophecy speaking to one who will come. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. I wonder if you're feeling poor today. And not just financially. Maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually, because of the hurt that you've experienced, maybe even in this last week, maybe for months, maybe it's been, it's been plaguing you for years. And it says, the Lord has anointed this promised one to bring good news to the poor, to speak to your hurt. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You know what I've found? That when I experience hurt or pain or betrayal or loss, my heart is broken. But Isaiah says here that there's coming one who's gonna mend that. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I wonder how many of us today are feeling totally closed in and bound by our sin. We're like, man, I wanna get past this, but I don't feel like I can. I keep giving in. This deliverer is told that he can bring freedom to what seems to be bondage, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to bring comfort 
to whatever you're mourning about, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. That this deliverer is going to come and, and he's going to make me an oak of righteousness. That there's a promise of a rooting in something that truly will bring me security. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So I wonder this morning as we're feeling the effects of the fall, we may be even experiencing those things that we discussed and it's become our reference point. How in the world do we look to Jesus and know that he'll make a difference? Well... We're only in from creation and the fall in our timeline, and then we come into the Bible, and we come to this place in the Bible where redemption is the theme. And the heavens open up in Luke 2, and Jesus puts on human flesh, and he lives on this earth 33 years, and he experiences everything that a human can experience, and he, but he lives it in a perfective way. And he stretches out his arms and he dies to pay the death that you and I deserve. And he's risen three days later to do what? To restore that love that was broken in the fall. To cause us once again to be able to love God. And before Jesus stretches out his arms across that wooden beam, we're told in Luke chapter 4, and you can turn to Luke chapter 4, and he goes back to his hometown. He goes back to his hometown. And I don't know about you, but when I go back to my hometown, they always remember me as the little guy that did something silly. Right? Well, Jesus was perfect, so... <laughs> I don't know, I'm not sure if they had anything to go on him. I mean, Jesus, remember when you did that stupid thing? No, no, no. Jesus was perfect. He didn't do anything stupid. But he's in his hometown, and in verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as it was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So what would happen was, is they would go into the synagogue, and they would open up a scroll, and someone would read from a passage of scripture. And so Jesus goes into his hometown, probably in a synagogue where he worshiped many, many times growing up, but now he's an adult. Now his ministry is going on. And he goes and he opens the scroll. And what's awesome is, is the place that he goes. And we don't have time to read every bit of what's found in verses 18 and 19, but do you know what he reads? He could have read so many things. But he reads Isaiah 61. And then look at verse 20. It says, and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, this is what Jesus says. I mean, they're all staring at him. This is the carpenter's son. Like This is the kid who never did anything wrong. This is the kid that used to drive my kids crazy because he never did anything wrong. Like, well, look at what Jesus says. This has begun to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Drops the mic. Why do I take you to that? Because Isaiah 61 that speaks to someone coming to heal your hurts, to heal your pain, 
to mend your broken heart, to take whatever it is that has you feeling ashamed and you feel like you're in ashes. He wants to give you a headdress. The person who can accomplish those things for you as you live on this earth, as you are asking, can Jesus make a difference? The person who can make a difference is Jesus. He's the one who stretched out his arms and died and was risen for you and lived perfection for you. He came to do this. Listen to me. He came to give you a new reference point. He came to say, for so long in your life, you've been allowing hurt and pain and shame and disgrace and disappointments and bitterness and anger to shape how you see me, how you see others, how you see yourself. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's time for you not to only see the gospel as the means of your salvation, as the means to reconcile you, but now begin to see the gospel as your means of sanctification, as the motivation for you to be built up, as the thing that not only reconciles you, but I desire to restore your soul. Psalm 23, 3. And when I began to no longer see the gospel as just something that you proclaim so that people can trust in Christ as their savior to save them from hell, and I started to see that the gospel was something that we needed to preach to every aspect of our life, that I need to preach it in how I love my wife, that I need to preach it to how I love my kids, that I need to preach it in how I represent Jesus in the place that I work, that I need to allow it to be the motivation that if it's changing me, then I need to share it with my neighbors that live across the street from me and beside me when I begin to see that the gospel is more than just what I give to someone who's lost, but to really be something that I'm applying to my life to someone who has been saved from it. Then all of a sudden, I begin to understand why I need to be gospel-centered in all I do because it is what my life should be built upon. Here's what's awesome. You thought I was done with the timeline. It's another part, the story of God's word that comes to its consummation we talked about last, last week, where the church is compared to a bride in Revelation 21, it talks about this new Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her husband, where Jesus, in his death and resurrection, yes, provided a relationship with me. Man, there's coming a day where there's going to be no more hurt, there's going to be no more disappointment, that he's going to provide a way by wiping away all sins so that we can love and live with God forever. How am I being built up in that? How am I allowing that to be the reference point to speak to what is hurting me? And I'm not minimizing those hurts, but one of the things that Isaiah 61 says is he comforts those who mourn. So part of me growing in my sanctification is, Lord, I want you and what I have in you to speak to the disappointments and the struggles that I am in right now, believing that you will. Listen to me, I struggle with trust. Struggle with trust. It's hard for me to trust people, it just is. It's a whole message in and of itself, but it just is. You know what God brought me to in this process for me and understanding the impact and the power of the gospel 
is, you know, the greatest reason that I can trust God, that you can trust God, is not is he going to answer your prayer the way that you desire him to tomorrow, though I want you to pray for that. The greatest reason I can trust God, and this is gospel, is to look in the empty tomb. It's the greatest reason that you can trust God and that I can trust God. Here's the third thing, and we got to move. Here's the third reason. The gospel is how your faith is to be established, because isn't that what it says? It says you need to be rooted. You need to be built up in him. Keep building yourself up in who you are in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 says that we are to be strengthened with all might to understand the breadth and depth and height of the love of God. But it says here, established in the faith just as you were taught. Listen to me, an established faith is an obedient faith. Established faith happens as I engage God's word, as I grow in my understanding of it, as I apply it to my life. I need to grow in what God's word says. That's a process. But I don't do it out of guilt. I don't do it because Johnny's telling me I need to do it or whoever's on this stage. No, no, no. I do it because there's a hunger in me to want to engage God's word and be more grounded in my faith. Why? Because I understand how much God loves me through Jesus Christ. And then here's the last reason why we value being gospel-centered in all we do. Look at what the end of verse 7 says. It says, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, the gospel is why your heart should abound in thanksgiving. And so often my heart abounds in an event that's taken place that's gone my way. Yes, God, thank you for that. Nothing wrong with that, that's amazing. But when my thanksgiving is just tied to God working out things the way that I wish he would, I'm in trouble. But when my heart abounding in thanksgiving is linked, is rooted is being built up, is being established in the things that can never be taken away from me, which is my relationship with Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit that is changing me more and more to be like him, my sanctification. All of a sudden now, I have such a greater reason to be thankful. See, that word abound literally has the idea of a river overflowing its banks, like it's rushing over. And what I want to encourage you with as we close this morning is so many of us, up to this point in our lives, we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior But the impact that the gospel is having in how we view life in the present is honestly nothing more than a pebble. It makes a very little splash in affecting how we view life, how we view God, how we view others. Man, when I value being gospel-centered in all I do, and that's an ongoing process, When I value being gospel-centered in all I do, see, the gospel becomes less about a pebble and literally becomes a boulder. 
So it intersects with my life. It has amazing repercussions. It overflows my heart. It impacts my life and intersects with my life in a way that has yet to happen. And I begin to see that Jesus, the reason why I can say he makes a difference today is because I'm not defined by my hurt. I'm not defined by my pain. I'm not defined by my circumstances. I'm not defined by my my disappointment. I'm not defined by my loss. And even though that hurts, and even though I can grieve, and even though I need to mourn, what's the promise that we have? That we have a Jesus who comforts those who mourn, who is in a process of restoring my soul, not just reconciling it, but restoring it.